What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 118. Today, we are talking about a true crime case, a case that is really important to hear about because time is sadly running out. Today, we are going to be talking about the case of Julius Jones and justice for Julius Jones. Absolutely. Yeah, the poor guy is on death row right now, and he's set to get his execution date probably in the next month or so, or maybe even sooner. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen. But when you guys hear this story, you are going to just be blown away by what happened to this guy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's on death row right now and has been for 20 years now for a crime he did not commit Mm -hmm. is just truly astounding. It is. The system is incredibly broken. There's so many things to look at here and flaws and mistakes that were made. And most importantly, we want you guys to sign the petition for Julius Jones, which has gone pretty viral. I think it's at almost 6 million signatures now. Yes, it has. Well, Um, and just in the past few weeks and Kim Kardashian, you know, has gotten involved with this case as well and bringing awareness to it, which obviously really helps. It does. It does help. Yeah. Hater lover. It does help. It does. But this is an extremely important case. Uh, out of Oklahoma, and we will be diving into that fully. But before we get into all that, we want to thank our sponsors today. We've got ExpressVPN and Thrive Market. Thank you guys for supporting the show. But let's go ahead and jump into some of the news topics we got this week. We have some updates on the Valo case we wanted to talk about. Yes, huge updates on the Valo case. If you did not see our episode covering that or see something else on it, I mean, this case has been pretty, you know, public and publicized. And just truly crazy. I mean, it's one of those that has just been, we're, we're all sitting around wondering what happened mm-hmm. to Tylee and JJ. And sadly, we finally have an answer to that. Yes, we do. So I'm going to do a quick overview of the case for those of you who have not heard of it and are okay. kind of confused. So back in September, two minors went missing, JJ Vallow and his sister, Tylee Ryan. They are the children of Lori Vallow. Lori Vallow was married to a man named Charles Vallow, and they have been, I guess, the main parents to Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. Charles is not their father. He was their stepfather, but like a father to them. Tylee was 17. J.J. was only eight. Over the summer, Lori Vallow's brother, Alex Cox, killed Charles Vallow, so Lori's ex. And then a few months later, she... Well, she'd actually been talking to this guy, Chad Daybell, for a while, who's an interesting cat. He believes that the world's going to end. He's like a Mormon extremist. Yes. And he is a doomsday guy, essentially. He's like written a bunch of books. He's an author. And Lori got really into him. And he spends a lot of time in Hawaii, so they spend time together there. Right. And I was just going to say, too, that it's important to remember with Chad Daybell is that he's predicting that the end of the world is in July. Yes. They both think that. They fully believe that. And I mean, damn, right? It's been a shitty year. Multiple people have DM'd me this year and said, you know, I'm starting to think Lori's right. Like, it's scary out there right now. And I totally get that. So (laughs) I don't even know what to say. Yeah, I know. And I saw another thing, too. This is kind of off topic, but I saw an article that said the Mayan calendar was read wrong and it wasn't 2012, but in fact, it's 2020 that the Mayans predicted. So that to me, I'm like, is that true, though? I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't know that much yeah. about it. So I can't say if that's a hundred percent true or not, but it is interesting, especially mm. considering how much shit has happened this year. And when you look back at 2012, there really wasn't that much no. that happened that year. Mm. 
compared to now. So yeah, I know. But back to the story. These guys are doomsday preppers. Uh, Lori Vallow, you know, her husband died over the summer and then she ended up marrying Chad Daybell in Hawaii after the kids were already missing. And meanwhile, a few months after this, I think it was October, Chad Daybell's wife also died mysteriously. Yes. And I can't remember if it was October or not. I don't remember the exact timing on that, but yes, she died of mysterious circumstances. She was completely healthy and she ends up dead. Alex Cox, her brother also ended up dead. There's just so many weird things going on here, but basically everyone's been wondering where are the kids? Lori's been in custody for the last few months awaiting trial because she has still not produced her kids, will not say where they are. And they have not been able to prove that they were alive or anything. And so a lot of people for a while thought, you know, maybe they are in a bunker. We talked about that extensively. The idea that maybe, you know, these guys are doomsday preppers. Maybe they're keeping their kids safe somewhere. And that's why they're being all weird and not telling us. But unfortunately, we all got a huge wake up call uh, the last few days. Yeah, this past Wednesday, June 10th, Chad Daybell was actually arrested on charges of destroying evidence due to the police finding two children's remains on his property in Idaho. So obviously a really sad outcome. People really did have hope that maybe they were being kept somewhere. I mean, I was hanging on to that idea, but I knew it was probably unlikely, especially with all the other deaths in the family and just how bizarre they are. But now the process of justice begins. You know, this is a good thing in a way. It's Well, what's interesting to me is that they're charging them with concealing remains like why aren't they being charged with homicide you know well, i think they will be there's probably yeah. more charges that will come yeah and they might even have already charged them by the time this episode goes out actually that's true i'm so, not sure based upon finding the remains on the on chad daybell's property mm-hmm. they are initially charging him with concealing the remains because they don't know if he did it or did Lori do it or right. did someone else do it right You know, there's going to be a lot of questions that need answering. There's so much that doesn't make sense here. I mean, we'll hear about this case for a long time, possibly years. And it has been confirmed that the remains are JJ and Tylee. Mm -hmm. At least the initial reports are that it's those two, right? Yes, it has been confirmed. It took a little while. Um, I think it, I mean, it got leaked multiple times. There were news reporters who said that the kids died. The prosecutor, they did like a Zoom call trial for Chad uh, not trial, like a <laughs> yeah for his uh, hearing, yeah his yeah. hearing, uh, his bond hearing, which he he's on bond for a million dollars. Yep, same as uh, Lori. So same as Lori, um, but he said because the kids died, so that's when the media really picked it up. That okay, it is them. I mean, who else would it would you know who else would it be? We pretty much knew it was going to be them. It's right. just so sad. It's been such a depressing couple of days. And the poor grandparents. Oh, I know. The Woodcock family. They are Ugh. such sweet people. I'm heartbroken for them. And held out hope. Like They really did. That, you know, they wouldn't be, you know, something terrible wouldn't have happened to yeah. their poor grandkids. And Ugh. I'm just dreading hearing more of the details, you know, if they do autopsies. And I know it's going to be more bad news that comes out of this case. Well, one of the details that's coming out from... Uh, investigators looking at his property is when they went to talk to neighbors, the neighbors are claiming that just days after the two kids went missing back in September, mm-hmm. Chad started having huge bonfires on his property. So my guess is that he probably burned the bodies and what they found is charred remains of, of the kids, which is just horrible. It's possible. I have seen a lot of people saying that the bodies actually were found far away from 
the fire oh, really? pits. I'm not sure. I mean, like I said, we're still waiting on that information. Yeah. So I don't want to say that for sure, but I don't, I'm not, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, what I don't get is why did it take this long for police to go to his property? I know. And right? start looking at it. It took it that long to get a warrant, sense. I guess. I don't know. Well, I guess they said that the, it was too snowy. Yeah. I guess they said that one of the reasons was because, um, it was really snowy. And so they had to wait for the snow to melt and the ground to kind of like warm up and loosen up a little bit so that they could dig. And I'm like, that what? is the weirdest excuse I've ever heard. Why? Like There's the backyard should be one of the first places you look. And mm-hmm. regardless if it's snow, like, I mean, it's Idaho. It's not like it's Antarctica. I mean, how totally. bad could it be? You don't have the tools yeah. to do this search. You know, you had to wait till June to do this. I don't know yeah. how they, so I'm wondering how far they had to dig to find these remains too. I'm wondering what the actual, you know, details around finding it are. Cause I'm like, you couldn't bring cadaver dogs out there and they couldn't locate the location right. and just clear that one area. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm wondering the same thing. Like why, why did it take police so long to, yeah, I agree. And they brought it. cadaver dogs in this time. That's how they, you know, found the um, bodies this time. But yeah, I mean, you would think that they would at least send them out and have them smell it out and say, yeah, yeah there's something under here and then find a way to, melt the ice and loosen the ground up i don't know it's just knows what the hell chad daybell could have been doing this whole time and now we're starting to hear reports that he possibly could have been involved in some other um crimes i guess around the community he he for a long time was a grave digger for a living Mm -hmm. yeah people think that he may have helped bury bodies or had some involvement i mean it's all very salacious and speculation right now no one knows really anything but i've seen a couple of reports suggesting maybe he's involved it wouldn't surprise me for somebody that's so obsessed with the end of the world and death and everything he definitely seems like he's his mind is in another place and Mm -hmm. he yeah this is just all so alarming it's really sad i mean our hearts truly go out to the families who are missing tylee and jj right now i mean what a terrible way for this all to end and just a torturous months leading up to this wondering what happened and waiting for answers i mean i really can't imagine how painful that would be and upsetting and it's the worst end that you could think of mm-hmm. you I know. know like the two of them were so close tylee loved her brother so much it's just so sad i know it so really unnecessary is. it is but right now they are uh, working on autopsies for both of them because they got to determine cause of death and and all of that. So hopefully once they get those done, we will see. I hope the full extent of the law get, comes down on mm-hmm. these two, and you know they don't let them make any deals or anything like that. These two, no, they won't. These two deserve to be in prison for the rest of their life. America for sure. hates these two. They're like the most hated people in the country right now. Some of the most hated. Mm-hmm. But in other news. It turns out the elites are selling off their stock in record numbers. What does this mean? Which we saw this happen kind of before coronavirus really hit. And now we're seeing it again. And everybody's starting to wonder, and even more so this time, which is interesting. It seems like everybody that is, you know, an elite or a politician or something like that is starting to sell off their stocks in, you know, preparation for what you know what's going to happen to the market that they feel like they need to dump all of their stocks right now so now you know a few days ago almost three times as many people pulled all of their funds out of the stock market what does this mean is there some type of insider knowledge that they're getting 
that the rest of us aren't hearing about. Which is, is illegal. Something, yeah, it's illegal. <laughs> is something coming? Something well, worse than Corona? I mean, I don't want to scare anyone. Obviously, I'm not trying to fear monger, but it is weird. We have to look at this. I mean, what the hell? Well, I think people got to remember, too, that there's a reason why they have all these secret meetings, you know, uh-huh. like uh, Bilderberg meeting every every year. I think they have it where yeah. all the leads get together this summer, though. And yeah, I don't know. Coronavirus. I don't, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, later on, but I'm sure they still meet whether it's public Maybe. knowledge or not. I mean, yeah. I'm sure they still meet. And let's be real. I mean, I think they're they're talking on very high levels about the economy. I mean, all the most powerful people, both, you know, business owners, Jeff Bezos types individuals, and then politicians all meet and get together and talk about, you know, the economy and everything. But the fact that they're preemptively selling all their stock right now is, is kind of crazy. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it means nothing that's possible that, you know, people are just doing it because other people are doing it, I guess. Well, the thing about the market though, is like, earlier this week it was like at record highs Mm -hmm. and I even thought about like selling off because it was really 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 high Mm -hmm. so maybe they did it knowing that it's going to come back down and but it's record numbers it's like this hasn't been done in years do you think that they could be just preparing for like a second wave of of the virus oh they absolutely could be I don't know anything about this to be honest that's what I kind of think because there's you know, word around town is that there's going to be another wave in August, September time when it gets a little bit colder, that Corona is going to come back and hit harder than it has before. So Mm. maybe they're kind of preparing for that and thinking, Oh, there could be another, you know, a huge crash because of the aftershock of Corona. So Mm. I don't know, but yeah, that's all speculation. I think my whole thing is why right now though? Yeah, Why now? The only reason they would do this is as if they knew that it was going to go, maybe it's going to go down over the next month and they're going to buy it all back. For me, I think it's as much as I want to be like, Oh, it's some big event or something. I think it's just, they're playing the market and they just know because they have way more money invested in it. They mm-hmm. are watching, you know, we think we're all smart because we saw somebody like showing their little app or whatever that shows this. Think about the information that the actual leads and rich people have access to mm-hmm. and forecasts yeah. and the amount of, info that intel they're getting is probably way beyond what we have we're just looking at a little maybe they know something though maybe they know something we don't know but i mean yeah just saying economy could crash who knows maybe next week we'll be sitting here like looks like kendall was right (laughs) i mean who knows maybe this could mean absolutely nothing or maybe in a few weeks we will look back and say hmm maybe they do have some insider knowledge i don't know it's just interesting to note if it's anything i hope it's aliens if there's anything that happens this year I hope it's I don't aliens. Know if I can mentally handle anything else happening this year, I just hope that it's the peaceful aliens and not the the ones that want to fight us. <laughs> so the last story we want to talk about is a New Mexican art dealer who had a million dollars worth of treasure hidden in the Rocky Mountains that was found. These stories I always love because you know the idea of just coming across buried treasure somewhere, like you know, say you're hiking one day in the mountains and. Then all of a sudden you just like see a chest and you go over to it and there's just <laughs> gold in it. Like that would be amazing. That would be. That'd be the best day of my life. <laughs> but that it's actually a, a lot of really wealthy people do this kind of thing where they go out and they hide treasure out there for people to go and find. Like this isn't yeah. like that rare of a thing to happen. Really? I can't imagine being rich enough that I'd want to like hide my money for someone else to find. Well, the reason why, so this, this guy is named Forrest Fenn and he's a New Mexican antiquities collector 
and he hid it as part of a treasure hunt. And he said that the country was going into a recession and everybody was losing their jobs. So I wanted to give somebody some hope. Wow. That was one of the reasons. And then the other was that I wanted kids to get off the couch and go to the mountains, <laughs> look for treasure. Hell yeah. And he said that hundreds of thousands of people have tried searching for the treasure over the past 10 years. And there was actually four people who ended up dying while searching for it. So it's been out there for a very long time. And he's provided clues to those searching for the treasure in a poem that he wrote called The Thrill of the Chase. How fun is like a rich yeah. guy to, you know, a rich individual <laughs> to just make a treasure hunt for what people. a creative person what a great way to do charity too you know like yeah it's fun I guess fun so. charity but one of the clues in this thrill of the chase said begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down not far but too far to walk put in below the home of brown and then another clue was so hear me all and listen good your effort will be worth the cold if you are brave and in the wood I give you title to the gold. And how did they find it from that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you put all the clues together, but. So he said he was actually a bit shocked because he hit it in a pretty good place and lots of people of the years couldn't find it. But this last man followed the clues in his poem and they took him right to the treasure. Whoa, that's got to really think outside the box, I guess, to connect the dots. That's really cool though, but he won't say who found it. That's the whole thing is we don't know who the individual is or where it was hidden. That's the whole mystery behind it, hmm. but it's pretty cool. So somebody found a million dollars worth of treasure. I want to know who it is though. That's so lame, but there's people that legitimately treasure hunt. Like, you know, there's obviously the Oak Island people that mm -hmm. I'm like, damn, that's commitment. You guys are still there looking <laughs> for shit, like looking for that treasure on Oak Island. But there's a lot of people that are professional treasure hunters or I think there's even some YouTubers that do oh, really? uh, hunting under the ocean too, Ooh. looking for shipwrecks and things That'd like be that. Very exciting. All right. But that's all we got for news this week. Let's go ahead and get into the case of Julius Jones. But before we do, we'd like to thank our sponsors for today. So on the evening of July 28th, 1999, around 9.30 p.m., 45-year-old Paul Howell had arrived at his parents' house in Edmond, Oklahoma, where he was living at the time. And he just had gotten back from shopping for school supplies with his daughters, who were seven and nine, and his sister. They had gotten their school supplies, actually gotten some ice cream, and were coming home. It was just a normal night. So they're all in the driveway. They're getting out of the car when suddenly a man approached Paul and shot him as he was just standing in the driveway. His sister and his children were able to run away into the house, scared, obviously, but unharmed. Yeah, and after Paul gets shot, the guy that shot him gets into his 1997 GMC Suburban and drives away. And that's Paul's car that he took. Whoever did this, it was all for an auto theft. As soon as he heard the gunshot, Paul's father quickly called the police and investigators came to the scene. Right, and once they got there, they found two shell casings and started taking statements from all the family members. And Paul's sister, Megan Toby, was the only eyewitness to the crime, which a lot of times in these types of carjackings and things like that, there's not even mm -mm. any eyewitnesses at all. So at least there was one, but she could only describe the shooter as a young black man with a red bandana, a white shirt and a stocking cap. And she said that she could see about an inch or so of hair sticking out from under the cap, which this fact come 
which this fact becomes extremely important later on. Mm-hmm. But also this happened around 930 at night. So it was dark outside or starting to get dark outside. So it definitely made it a little bit harder to make out who this individual was. Plus they were wearing a bandana over their face. Mm-hmm. So based on the evidence at the crime scene, police quickly determined that this was most likely a carjacking slash homicide. And it could have even have been possibly gang related because GMC Suburbans are really good uh, cars to sell for parts at chop shops which Oklahoma city in this area has a huge problem with stolen vehicles and chop shops. Tragically, Paul was declared dead four hours after he was originally shot and his family was just devastated. Yeah. I mean, this whole murder rocked the entire community. Cause I mean, this community of Edmond is a suburb of Oklahoma city. And I actually lived in Oklahoma city for four years. I, I never went to Edmond, but mm. I remember hearing about Edmond. Uh, but the thing about Edmond is it's kind of like this white bubble. Uh, it's predominantly mm-hmm. white there and Oklahoma city is, uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily predominantly black, but it's definitely got a large black African American Much more population. diverse than Edmonton. Absolutely. Or Edmond. Sorry. But Paul Howell was described as a positive, a likable guy who served as both a church deacon and a mentor for participants of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of his good character, a lot of people were obviously really upset about mm-hmm. this. And this was just a senseless death and just a complete waste that they lost him. Yeah. And it's just sad to be shot in front of your children too. I mean, how traumatic for them and no parent wants their kid to see them like that. It's just really terrible. Yeah, it really is. But because Edmund is not really known for having a high crime rate and doesn't really have gang activity there, the public was very concerned that gang activity was making its way into their community. And so, you know, this raised a lot of concern for everybody that was living there. I mean, Paul was a white middle-class man living in a wealthy suburban area where, you know, 85% of the people are white and they are demanding that something be done about this. So the police have a ton of pressure to find who did this. It's also important to note though, that when desegregation happened, a lot of people, there was this white flight out of Oklahoma city and a lot of white folks moved up to Edmond. And so Unfortunately, there's definitely not everybody in Edmond, but there's definitely a lot of racism that exists within this community Mm -hmm. and they do not like uh, blacks or African-Americans coming to their community, especially uh, from the inner city. So when this happened, there was this huge panic, like we said, and, you know, perception started going around of, you know, young black youth are coming into our communities and causing crime and killing people. And a lot of fear was created out of this. So Mm -hmm. the police were getting a ton of pressure to solve this and solve it quickly. So that's exactly what they they did. The police started looking for Paul's car because obviously if they can find Paul's car, maybe they can find the person that killed Paul and stole his vehicle. On Friday, July 30th, two days after Paul was murdered, police ended up finding the suburban parked at a grocery store on the south side of Oklahoma City. And what's interesting is that this grocery store was just down the street from a chop shop owned by a man named Kermit Lottie. So Kermit Lottie was a confidential informant for the police. And so investigators immediately turned to him for possible insight into who had stolen the car and committed the homicide. And police informants just in general, I think, is a very controversial tool that Mm -hmm. police use because... A lot of times what happens and oftentimes is that these police informants don't always tell the truth because when something happens in their neighborhood, the police immediately go to those informants 
expecting the informants to have information, what's word on the street. And so they feed him this information in exchange for protection for things they might have done or, you know, lesser charges for, Mm -hmm. you know, prior uh, convictions that they've had. So they kind of work out these deals with uh, these criminals. And so it it definitely creates a, a really difficult situation because in this case, these informants become absolutely crucial into what happens to Julius Jones. So, of course, the police ask Kermit, you know, do you know anything about this? And Kermit tells the police that a man who goes by the name Day Day tried to sell him Paul's vehicle. So once they have that name, police go and identify Day Day, who is named Liddell King, who also ends up being a police informant as well, at least in the past. And Liddell King had been involved in car theft in the city for years. He had a long, extensive Mm -hmm. record. And so he was definitely in the know about what was going on uh, with these stolen vehicles. And so that same day, after talking to Liddell, they brought him into custody where they interviewed him and took a taped statement from him. And basically in this interview, he asserts that he was the middleman. Like he, you know, Mm -hmm. I have nothing really to do with it. I just kind of, you know, facilitated everything. And according to him, a man named Chris Jordan or Westside came over to his apartment on the night that Paul was murdered. And shortly after a friend of Chris's named Julius Jones drove up in a gold suburban and approached Liddell to help him sell it in which he agreed claiming that he was not aware at the time that the car owner had been killed when they actually stole the vehicle. And then that's when they then took the suburban to Kermit's shop where Kermit refused to buy it because it was hot. It had a murder connected Mm -hmm. to it. Liddell King went on to say that later on when he saw the news broadcasts about the homicide of Paul Howell, he recognized the suburban that was taken from the scene as the car that Julius Jones drove to his apartment and asked him to sell. And he also said that Julius's clothing that night matched the eyewitnesses description of the shooter, which again, going back to that description is not very detailed at all. Mm-hmm. Talking a white shirt, a bandana and a stocking cap. I mean, Lid- the main detail is the inch of hair that was sticking out of the cap. Right? Yeah. Liddell also told police that Chris Westside Jordan had just been the driver during this car theft mm-hmm. and that he was not the shooter. It wasn't involved in the murder whatsoever and just had merely driven him to Edmond in order to steal the vehicle. But it was actually Julius mm-hmm. that ended up shooting and killing Paul Howe. That Chris was just some type of accomplice. Exactly. Which what's crazy about this though, is that based off of one statement from an informant of theirs, the police turned all of their focus immediately onto Julius and they unleash all of their resources in an attempt to hunt him down pretty much and arrest him for the murder of Paul Howell. Yeah. They take Liddell's word completely. Completely. Yeah. Don't even consider any mm-hmm. other options. Consider, consider maybe he's telling them a story because he may not want them to know the truth. Right. Like how dumb do you have to be to just buy someone like mm-hmm. that's it's not just like you bad can trust him work. that much at all. It, given his past and everything seriously. And you got to remember that these guys have committed crimes. These informants have charges against them. They're going to always look at what's they're going to always look out for what's best for them. Absolutely. And Julius Jones, as we'll find out here in a minute was, you know, didn't even know these guys really. Mm -hmm. He was just acquaintances with them. Yeah, he really was. At the time of Paul's murder, Julius Jones was 19 years old. He was a college student at OU. He was attending school on an academic scholarship which is hard to do. Oklahoma University is a really big school, really mm-hmm. 
well-known sought after school. And so being there on an academic scholarship, it was huge for him. Mm -hmm. And he was getting ready to start his sophomore year at the time. He was really enjoying school and playing basketball. And according to Julia's best friend, Jimmy Lawson, he and Julius were the only two black male students to graduate in the top 10% of their high school class at John Marshall high school. They both had a goal to receive good educations and become successful examples to other kids in their community. Yeah. I mean, they were excellent students. They mm-hmm. did really well and had a really good family, really good parents that uh, raised them. And yeah, nothing in the, in their past really at this point that would indicate anything criminal. No, not at all. I mean, his future was very bright. He wasn't just a basketball player. He was a star basketball player and he was playing for OU, which is pretty hard to do. Yeah. I mean, you have to be really good at basketball to be playing for OU. That's for sure. Yep. He was the middle child in his family. He had a brother named Antonio and a sister named Antoinette. And the siblings grew up really, really close. And Julius's family has said that he was always a good and hardworking kid. And he did get into a little bit of trouble later on in life for some petty crimes, petty theft, shoplifting, Mm -hmm. and then also making a false statement when obtaining a state ID. So again, I mean, nothing... Nothing, small things, small things, but it certainly doesn't point to him being a killer by any means. No, this, absolutely know, petty not. Theft. Yeah. They were definitely trying to make it seem like, Oh, look, he has a record. Well, none, none of this is anywhere near murder. No, not at all. I mean, the way that Julius even describes it is he was like, I was a dumb teenager, you mm-hmm. know, like we all make mistakes. We mm-hmm. all do dumb shit when we're young. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. 19 years old at the time. Okay. Yeah. 19, mm-hmm. you're barely out of high school. You barely know what's going on in the world. You're starting to get into adult life and understanding, you know, what the real world is like. So very easy to slip up and make a mistake. So Julius and Chris actually knew each other from high school because they were both on the basketball team. They didn't spend that much time together at this point in their lives. They weren't like close friends, but they were hanging out around this time. Yeah. And what's interesting is that pretty much the whole time that they had known each other, Julius had always kept kind of a a bit of a distance from him Mm because he knew that Chris was into, you know, bad things and and hung with the wrong crowd. Yeah. Kind of in in the, the street crowd a little bit. So he knew that he was probably involved with things that he didn't want to be involved with. So it wasn't really until college that Julius started kind of hanging around Chris a little bit more mm-hmm. and Julius's best friend, Jimmy uh, definitely became wary of, of the two hanging out because Chris was known to have some gang affiliations. And again, his lawyer and stuff denies that he was ever connected to a gang officially, but he definitely hung out with people that were associated with gangs. Julius said that most people kind of misunderstood their friendship he really started spending time with Chris in order to help him with his HCT score so that he could also go to college. Right. He offered to pay him to, I think, take the ACT test for him or at least help him cheat on it. Yeah, he did. And so, you know, a lot of the things that Julius Jones did at this time in his life was just to get some money Yeah, because he didn't come from a wealthy family or anything like that. So he just wanted to have, you know, some money when he went to school. Cause I mean, who doesn't want to have money when you go into college, you mm-hmm. know, parties and all that. And, girls and dates and all that. So he wanted to just, you know, get a little money. So he offered to help Chris take the ACT for him. Yeah. That's how smart he was too. I mean, he could, he didn't mind taking the ACT again. Mm -hmm. And it also shows how willing Chris was to take advantage of Julius. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So going back to what Liddell said to police, he's saying that Julius was there that night in Edmond and he was the one uh, along with Chris who actually carried out the carjacking and the murder of Paul Howell. 
Yet, what's interesting is that Julius had an alibi for the night of the crime. Mm-hmm. In fact, him and his whole family maintain that he was at his parents' home, which is over 20 minutes away from Edmund, eating spaghetti and playing Monopoly with his siblings. His brothers actually recall that Julius was still at home when he left for work at 9.30 p.m. to get to his 10 o'clock shift, which would have made it impossible for Julius to be at the scene of a murder 20-plus minutes across town. Julius also said that he had stayed at his parents' house until 11.30 p.m. that night, and that he had to go back to his apartment by the OU campus after that. And he was actually waiting to catch a ride from Chris Jordan. And when Chris finally showed up, he actually told Julius that he got into it with somebody and that something went wrong. However, Chris wouldn't tell him anything beyond that. And Julius figured at the time that it was probably better not to ask him about it because he probably knew that, you know, he was into some sketchy business and, you know, he just didn't want to involve himself in that. What's crazy is that literally on the same day that Kermit and Liddell told police that Julius was the one that they wanted. He was the one that killed Paul Howell. The police then went and completely surrounded the Julius Jones family home. Yes. You would have thought this was the home of a mass murderer. You know, someone who's been on the wanted list for years. There were so many police outside of the house. It was so excessive. Yeah. It was really blown out of proportion. I mean, they, they were going off of a, tips from two informants that they didn't even know police don't even know for certain criminals too yeah exactly they're believing criminals that say that this guy who really doesn't fit the profile of a killer Mm -mm. is in fact the one that did it and then they're treating him as such and like you said treating him as if he had just gone out and committed Mm -hmm. you know a mass murder or something like that and not only that they had SWAT team there they had snipers set up Mm -hmm. they literally had Every police officer, it seemed, around their house. So when the police do this, they then order Julius's siblings and his parents to exit the house with their hands up. And they were so freaked out. They said it was one of the scariest moments of their lives. I can't even imagine. And they were really aggressive to them. Like, get out of here. Get yeah, like, they just, like, like shit. burst yeah. into the house. Guns drawn on everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, they, they were like, what the hell? They probably were so yeah, confused were. about what was going on. Like. So as his family is coming out of the house, they're saying, you know, the police are like, where's Julius? Where's Julius? And they're like, he's not home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they still continue, even though he wasn't home, they still treated the family like shit. They still, Mm -hmm. you know, were acting like somebody was holed up inside there and, you know, could do something crazy. It's just honestly wild because you just don't see that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't really happen. I mean, especially in this type of situation where, you are looking for a suspect as well. I mean, that you definitely do, you know, an armed felony stop is what it's called on somebody, but it doesn't involve usually having SWAT team and 30 officers, news coverage, helicopters Mm -hmm. flying overhead. I mean, they really made this a spectacle. So once they got everybody out of the house, the police couldn't even enter it yet because they're still in the process of obtaining a search warrant. Meanwhile, police were also looking for Chris Westside Jordan, who was tracked down to a payphone near Liddell's apartment. And he was quickly arrested and taken to the Jones home. Instead of taking him down to the station like a normal mm-hmm. arrest would go, they actually take him to Julius's house where police are still staking it out, waiting for Julius. And investigators convince Chris that it would be in his best interest to cooperate with them. So Chris started giving the police information and suggestions on where to search for evidence in the house from the backseat of a patrol car. That's so insane. Imagine how much unconfirmed information they 
got from him or how many things we just don't know that they could have said to him because it wasn't documented in a police station. They just took him to the scene. Yeah. That is unheard of. Roll the window down and let him just talk to the police while they're there. That is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. So after staking out the house for several hours, the police finally got the warrant they needed and they entered the house and they completely destroyed this thing. It's really absurd did. what they did to it. They ripped mattresses apart. They put, they just like took all of their clothes out, stuff everywhere, broke things, broke family items, picture frames, and they kept their house very neat. His mom was known for being meticulous in the way that she kept her home and they just destroyed it, which you know what? They would not have done that if this was a white suspect, period. That just wouldn't no. have happened. Blatant disrespect for their home. Yes. Regardless of if you're looking for evidence or mm-hmm. you're looking for even a killer. I mean, just no respect for the family whatsoever. I mean, you're looking for one person who may be a suspect right. in a homicide, but the rest of the family, they get treated the mm-hmm. same. Mm-hmm. They just treated the whole family. Did they like treat they're all Chris Watts that way? No. Did they Did go they into destroy his, house? his house? No. No. Yeah, and even Julius's dad said that they like threw ketchup and mustard or something yeah. on the floor and stepped all over what it. What the fuck? Just made a mess on purpose, clearly. Like, what are you looking for evidence in some in ketchup? The, yeah. Why do you need to pour ketchup out? What, are you making yourself a sandwich in there? Like, <laughs> I know. Makes no sense whatsoever. But while they were searching the house, based on information they got from Chris, which he told him exactly where to look, pretty much, they found a 25 caliber pistol, which they would later confirm as the murder weapon. And this pistol is wrapped in a red bandana in the crawl space connected to Julius's bedroom. I believe it was in his uh, closet. There was like a little crawl space above. It's like and, the perfect evidence to find yeah. a gun with the bandana right over it in his room. And clearly this is what's interesting to me is that the fact that they went in there and found that so quickly mm-hmm. is interesting because clearly Chris Jordan mm-hmm. knew exactly where exactly where this gun was and why would he know that? Mm. Very weird. But to police, once they found the murder weapon, this just confirmed that Julius was obviously the primary perpetrator of the murder. But Julius wasn't home, so they had to continue searching for him, you know, so that they could take him into custody. So now this is the events leading up to Julius's arrest from his point of view. So Julius recounted that on Thursday, July 29th, the day after he left his parents' house, Liddell paged him just after 1.40 p.m. looking for Chris. Julius and Liddell had only met about two months before, and Liddell knew Chris better than he knew Julius. That's the main thing mm-hmm. to keep in mind throughout all of this is that Julius really didn't even know these people. Mm-hmm. He, was, he had met them. Like barely associated with them. Yeah, definitely barely acquaintances. But when Julius told him that he didn't know where Chris was, Liddell asked him if he could help him move a truck. So, which this proves to be a grave mistake on Julius's part, but Julius knew that Liddell was involved in shady deals, but he wanted to make money. I mean, he was young and he wanted money, so that's why he did it. But he didn't know that it was a car that was involved in a murder. Right. And so he went with Liddell to the grocery store near Kermit's Chop Shop, but only drove Liddell's car, which was a Cutlass. He never drove the Suburban, according to Julius. He said that Liddell was actually the one that drove the Suburban, because if you remember, they found the Suburban at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And then he said after dropping the Suburban off in the grocery store parking lot, they then went down to Kermit's together. Julius figured that the car was stolen, but he didn't know, obviously, about the murder 
until Kermit refused to buy the vehicle. And after they left the chop shop, they went to a rec center where they met up with Chris. Liddell and Chris then stepped away and started speaking privately. And it was all right in front of Julius. Yeah. He's like on a bleacher. Watching yeah, he's all like, this. And they're like kind of getting into it. Like they're mm-hmm. definitely talking about something serious. And, and that was when Julius kind of realized that the two were most likely involved in the crime of stealing the, the vehicle as well as the murder. And he said that this is his biggest regret that he didn't go to the police when he originally felt like they were involved with this murder, which he, he did say that the reason was because where he grew up, you just didn't go and snitch to the police. Like mm-hmm. you didn't go and, and contact right. the police. You don't talk to the police. That's just kind of how he grew up, mm-hmm. but still in this case, you should have definitely done that. And then that night after going to the rec center, Chris slept over at Julius's parents' house because he was locked out of his grandmother's house. And this is really unusual. He had never spent the night before. He's not like his best buddy. I mean, he just randomly wanted to sleep at his house. Now, why would he possibly have hmm. wanted to stay the night at Julius's house? Well, the reason for Chris wanting to spend the night is clearly because when he went over there, he ended up sleeping in Julius's room and Julius slept on the couch. And Julius believes that while he was staying in his room, Chris stashed the bandana and 25 caliber gun in his room in order to frame him for the crime. And it would also explain how Chris would have known exactly where the gun was in, in mm-hmm. Julius's room. So it's pretty obvious that Chris and Liddell talked about this. They made up this plan. They probably literally pointed over at Julius. We're like, let's blame him. Like you're not going to be able to get away with this. The police want well, they always use the term feed the beast. Yes. You know, when there's someone murdered, they want justice for that. They don't care really who it is. Well, so they were like, let's offer up Julius. Right. And especially since this was, you know, in Edmond and it was, mm-hmm. you know, black on white crime. And so mm-hmm. that, that really played into it too, that there was a extreme amount of pressure to bring justice for Paul. And Liddell knew that they were eventually going to get caught. So he was like, listen, you're going to be in a better position if you blame him and just say you were there. You know, you're still getting in trouble, but not as much as he will. Yeah, exactly. So he probably told him to go put the gun in there and to sleep at his house. It was probably all staged. Yeah, absolutely. So the following day on Friday, July 30th, Chris left early in the morning before Julius woke up. Uh, That's not sketchy at all. Mm -hmm. Julius stayed at the house until that afternoon when he answered a call from the police asking for him. And fearing that it had something to do with what Chris was up to and not wanting to be involved, obviously, he told the officer on the line that Julius wasn't home. He then hung up the phone and left. Then after that, Julius then left his parents' house and ran into Chris. And he, and he actually got into Chris's car with him and he confronted him about the phone call from the police. And it led Julius to believe that the cops were after Chris and his brother and not Julius. Mm-hmm. At that point, Julius then went to Chris's brother's apartment to speak with him about the phone call. And while they were there, he saw a news report on TV showing the police at his parents' house. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Oh my God, I'm sure he was freaking out. He was like, wait a minute. Why are they at my parents' house if Chris is the one Mm -hmm. that did this? And he just stayed at my house last night. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure he was connecting the dots right then and there that holy shit, these guys are trying to frame me. Mm Mm-hmm. But because the police were all at his house, he decided to stay the night at Chris's uh, brother's apartment. The next morning, 
on Saturday, July 31st, Julius woke up to the police busting in and arresting him. And Julius was, you know, just woken up. So he didn't have time to get dressed or anything like that. He didn't even have shoes or a shirt on when they took him into custody. Now, what happens next is definitely a point of contention because officially there's no proof of this. But according to Julius, this event really did happen. So he was arrested by the Oklahoma City Police and they were driving out to Edmond to then hand him over to them. And he recalls that at one point they pulled over at the, on the side of the road or something like that. And when they were actually switching him in between cop cars, an officer dared him to run and then called him a racist slur, which I'm sure you can imagine. And oh my God. Yeah. And he obviously knows that if he were to run, that he would just be shot. And that's what the officer probably wanted. Yeah. A chance to shoot him. Right. A reason to. Homicide suspect tries to run from police Mm -hmm. or fights police and runs and gets shot. Imagine how freaked out you would be. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you had nothing to do with this. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, the police department denies this this happened uh, at all. Of course they do. But after Julius got to the police station in Edmond, he insisted that he needed to talk to a lawyer and call his mother. So at the time of Julius's arrest, a man named Bob Macy was the district attorney for Oklahoma County. And this guy, he was a real fuck, honestly. His name, he was called Cowboy Bob. And that's because he had built a reputation of being extremely tough on crime. And so Cowboy Bob went on the media and announced that he would pursue the death penalty in Julius's case. Just straight off from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Again, they... Even though he doesn't even match the description of the suspect. (laughs) That's what's crazy to me is that they never even looked at that again. Mm -hmm. Or the fact that they didn't even bring, you know, Chris and Julius and put them in a room and let her go behind glass and look at them and see which one looked more like the suspect. You would think that's the first thing that you would do. Come on. Nope. Cause you got, otherwise it's just young black male Mm -hmm. wearing a white t-shirt stocking cap, but the hair thing, that's a big part of it. Cause you put those two together and what do you see? Yeah. Julius had very short hair. There's no way you could see it from underneath a cap. And Chris had cornrows and clearly had longer hair. Mm -hmm. So it would have been very easy for, Megan to look at them and probably identify who was the shooter. Yeah. He has at least an inch of hair kind of hanging out from his hairline. And that was clearly something she remembered. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact that she had that specific detail in there Mm -hmm. makes me think that if she had been able to see them, that she would have picked out Chris, which is crazy. So the whole time they've completely narrowed in on Julius as being the shooter, but cowboy Bob was, well liked in Oklahoma County. People liked that he was, you know, all about law and order and tough on crime and liked the fact that he was one of the most deadly prosecutors in the US at the time. Over his career, he sent 54 people to death row. And that's a thing I don't think we look at enough is these DAs. No. You know, we are we are calling out police and rightfully so, but we should also be looking at DAs for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Cuz so many cases are mm-hmm. a result of DA is just not doing their job or doing a very poor job at that. But it's important to note that Cowboy Bob sent a ton of people to death row and nearly half of those sentences were later reversed by courts and three individuals were eventually exonerated. So obviously this creates a lot of doubt and criticism towards yeah. Bob Yeah. Like how Macy's many people tactics. you almost had sent to death for no reason? Yeah. Mm. And he's just one of those guys that's like, 
Yeah, you can just tell he's a racist by looking at him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he th- he's pretty much like the death penalty is like every every mm-hmm. murder case should be that. But Oklahoma has been definitely one of the state's leading in executions. Between 1976 and 2016, Oklahoma put 112 people to death, a number beat only by Texas. So they're, they're all about that in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. There was even a study conducted which examined the relationship between race and death sentences in Oklahoma. What they found is that while a defendant's race did not have a statistical correlation with the result of the death penalty, the race of the victims did seem to correlate with the outcome of capital punishment. They found that the likelihood of a death sentence was 3.22 times higher in cases involving white male victims than minority male victims. These findings support the idea that race affected the perceptions of the case and the way law enforcement prosecuted it. So Chris was also arrested for first degree murder and he was set to be Julius's co-defendant. But the prosecution offered him a lesser sentence for his cooperation, which he knew that that would be the case. That's which they, yeah, they took the death penalty off the table for mm-hmm. him. Yeah, because they were completely relying on Chris's testimony to cooperate the stories given by Liddell and Kermit and confirm their narrative that Julius is the main perpetrator. Yeah. It just seems like in this case, it's not about truth and fairness and justice at all. It's just about feeding the beast. Yeah. A win for the DA pretty Mm -hmm. much. I really wonder what would have happened if this case took place. That wasn't such a white bubble. Like you were describing Josh and that there wasn't such pressure to like get this thing solved and get Edmund Mm -hmm. back to, you know, how it was before, Mm -hmm. you know, do you think that it would, the outcome would be different. It kind of makes me wonder how this affected this whole story just because of the fact that it took place in Edmond. I think it absolutely does affect it. And we will see later on that the jury, I mean, there was some racist in the jury. So how can you have a fair trial? So on Saturday, July 31st, the day after his arrest, Chris gave a statement in which he said that him and Julius were looking for suburbans to steal. They found and followed one to a home where Julius got out of the car and confronted the owner Paul Howell. Chris said that it was Julius that shot Paul while he stayed in the car. Chris's lawyer also later claimed that the detectives did not let him see Chris until after they had gotten his statement, which he recognizes blatantly unlawful and obviously suggests misconduct. I was also going to say too, that when you look at the actual detectives that worked on this case, you also see tons of misconduct in their Mm -hmm. past as well Mm -hmm. and racism in their past. So they weren't even playing by the rules from the very beginning. They weren't they weren't not. allowing Julius or Chris to talk to their lawyer before they started talking to them. So Chris was super inconsistent in his statements to police. For example, he said that he had stayed in the car and didn't see what happened and then later recounted and said that he saw Paul fall to the ground after being shot, which he couldn't have seen from the vantage point that he was saying that he was in, you know, where the car was parked. Right, because the car was kind of parked around the corner Mm -hmm. of the street where the house was. When you actually look at where the car was parked and what's in the line of sight from where Chris was supposedly at, Mm -hmm. there's trees, there's another house blocking the view of Paul Howe's driveway. Mm -hmm. So how did he see him fall to the ground? How did he he see the gun? He didn't. Chris also originally told police that he did sleep at Julius' parent home. Chris also originally told police that he did sleep at Julius's parents' home the Thursday night after the murder, but then he contradicted himself later in court and said that he did not go over there. Because he realized, oh shit, they're going to figure out that I put the gun up there. Yep, that's exactly why. He didn't want to be connected to that. 
And despite these contradictions, Chris's statement that he was just a driver and that Julius shot Paul fit the narrative of events built by Kermit and Liddell, making Chris just seem like an accomplice to the crime Mm -hmm. in the prosecution's case. All according to their plan. So when Julius's trial began in February of 2002, the prosecution made Chris the star witness. And because of his testimony at trial, they cut him a deal in which he would avoid the death penalty and would be eligible for parole after serving only 30 years of his life sentence. Mm -hmm. However, Julius's supporters argue that the prosecution did not accurately describe the deal they made with Chris to the jury because he would only go on to serve 15 years Mm -hmm. before being released from prison half of the original time described in the deal. Isn't that insane? He is likely the one who killed Paul Howell, and he's still out. He's out right now. He's walking free. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Julius, Julius is, is paying, facing the death penalty. Paying the full price of this. Mm-hmm. Liddell was another critical witness for the trial. Obviously, they brought him in because he was the one who provided information, kind of connected all the dots for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to remember that you know, he, how credible is this Liddell guy? I mean, mm-hmm. he has been, you know, had numerous run-ins with the law before and gave information in previous cases that would incriminate others. So if I was a juror on this trial, I would definitely be very skeptical of Liddell's testimony. You would think so. You would think at least, right? But it's easier for them all to just believe it so that they can get justice for Paul. They don't really care who it is. Right. And that's definitely what they did. The prosecution also provided security camera footage from the day after Paul's murder, which shows Liddell and Julius in the grocery store where police found Paul house suburban, which looks really bad to have Julius there as well. So to a jury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And obviously it's not good for him to be on footage at the grocery store with Liddell. It doesn't look good. No. And it would later be revealed that at the time of the trial, Liddell was facing a counterfeit check charge for which he would serve at least 20 years after he testified. His charge was dismissed completely, Mm -hmm. which obviously he made a deal with the prosecution. So literally all these other guys who are actually committing crimes are getting deals and charges dismissed by the prosecutors and blaming someone who is a student athlete who has no involvement in straight crooks. Yeah. Just insane. And this pattern of deal-making continued with Kermit, who also avoided serious legal trouble after assisting in Julius's arrest and trial. He actually faced a sentence of up to 40 years for drug charges. And although he said he did not receive any offers for his testimony, so one of the detectives on Julius's case wrote a letter asking for leniency because of Kermit's help on the homicide case. And because of this letter he got from Tony, Kermit ended up only getting four years on his federal drug charges for lying. Yeah. What bullshit? Meanwhile, this Tony detective guy is breaking the rules as well. Mm -hmm. And this letter for leniency was never presented to either the defense or the jury. So the jury during Julius's trial has no idea about all the sketchy behind the scenes deals that's being made. There was so much that was left out. So much was left out. So the main prosecutor on Julius's case was Sandra Elliott, who is like Bob Macy's, right-hand woman and yeah. yeah was like their top prosecutor and she used a method of producing fear while addressing the jury during her closing statements when she literally held up her hand like a gun to one of the jurors heads showing how paul was killed using fear tactics which this is misconduct mm-hmm. and the defense argued that using these types of tactics should have should have 
been enough for a mistrial. Exactly. Absolutely. But the request was denied. So unfortunately, Julius had probably the worst defense team of all time. He was assigned two public defenders, one named David McKenzie and another named Robin Bruno. And neither of them had any experience in trying capital cases. Which is a huge problem. Yeah, it's a I mean, problem. He's facing death. I know. You would hope that they'd at least give him a public defender that right. had some experience in that. Like that's the least Seriously. the state could do. But no. Yeah, and at this time, both of these public defenders, I think they said their caseload was like 70 or 80 or something. They were incredibly busy. So they had like no time to spend on preparing Julius for trial, which is so detrimental to his case. So during the trial, they obviously went back and forth with, you know, there was not really any witnesses to call forward, you know, to this crime or anything like that. When they actually went over the evidence in the trial, which really is just the bandana and the gun, the only real defense that they presented was that, there was no fingerprints on the car connecting Julius to the case and that the police had never even tested the red bandana or the gun for that matter to look for DNA. Isn't that insane? Shouldn't it be required? I don't understand how they just decide not to do it sometimes. Good police work. Yes, absolutely. You would test that. Why wouldn't you test that? Yeah, it makes. No don't sense. you want a slam dunk case? Yeah, because then the prosecution could be like, we even got his DNA like, it, yeah, don't you want to make sure you have the right fucking person, right? But in this case, because the police is so tied up with these informants and they need them because they're mm-hmm. providing them all this information, they're, you know, winning all these cases because right. of them. They don't care. Mm-mm. They're just completely throwing all truth and justice out the window. Probably the biggest moment in this trial was when Chris Jordan actually took the stand mm-hmm. and David McKenzie, Julius's attorney, should have went after Chris and mm-hmm. poked holes in his story and could have easily tripped him up and exposed that Chris was the one that in fact committed the shooting. If they had gone over the alibi, they had gone over, you know, the weapon in Julius's room. The fact that he stayed the night Mm -hmm. at Julius's house in his room. It's like he completely forgot everything. Like he didn't even try. And he claims that he had a bad day. Like he opens up about it in the documentary and said, I don't know what I was thinking. And I just wasn't, I really wasn't thinking. And it's just insane. Like, and Julius's response to that quote was, you're having a bad day. I'm having a bad life. I'd be so mad. Like he probably cost him, could have cost him his life. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, lazy and didn't care enough. David McKenzie really should be held responsible for that. Cause yeah, he really shit the bed on that one. I mean, he had everything set up to go after Chris and expose him. And he says even later on that, like I should have went in there and, and -hmm. exposed him as a liar that he is. And he just didn't Nope. another point that they did not successfully use in Julius's favor, which completely blows my mind Mm -hmm. is the eyewitnesses description of the shooter. We've been talking about Mm -hmm. this. The fact that he doesn't match the description. They do not bring this up in trial. What the actual fuck? It's like monkeys were running the trial. It's insane. What the fuck? That is like negligence on just a completely. It really is. He doesn't match the description. Not only that, but they also didn't go over his alibi from that night. They never talked about how he was with his family, how they, you know, they can all testify it saying that he was home with them having spaghetti, whatever, nothing. The jury never didn't even try. They didn't even. Yeah. And Julius really wanted to get up there and take the stand for himself and tell his own story because he figured, you know, his attorneys were doing such a bad fucking job. And he never even got that chance. 
they should have at least let him do that. And they Give didn't him even tell him chance. they weren't going to let him. No, they didn't. It's and they're like, crazy. this is in your best interest. Just trust us. Which I like, think is absurd. If you're yeah. facing possible death, no yeah. matter what, you should be able to yes. get up on the stand and talk for yourself. I think mm -hmm. that's fucking ridiculous that he was never able to get up and speak his own truth. Right. And I understand why they don't put some defendants up there because sometimes they can make it worse. But in this case, it makes no yeah. sense. Right. Why would you not put him up there? Right. It literally screwed him so bad. And then they told him to just trust, trust us. We know what we're doing. And they clearly didn't. Can you imagine that was your, these people are your only chance at freedom you're being accused of something that you didn't do and they fuck it up like that. How angry you'd be, how angry the family is. I'm so angry. I just cannot believe that some people get stuck with shitty ass public defenders that don't actually care. A lot of people really do. There's some great public defenders out there, but some of them do not care about all of their clients or they don't just don't have time because they're so overloaded Whoa. and people like what, like what you said, this is a death penalty case. Right. You should have the best of the best to defend you. That just should. Not only that, you're telling me that David McKenzie, I have 70, 80 caseload. How many of them are fucking death penalty cases? Exactly. They're probably Tell a bunch of that. other things. Right. You should what have been should prepared be the most as fuck thing? for a death penalty case. There's no excuse. And an innocent man Ugh, potentially disgusting. facing execution. Mm -hmm. And you, your fate is in your, like you hold his fate in your hands. Mm -hmm. And you put in zero effort. You pretty much, to me, and this is just my personal opinion, I think there's something more with him. Mm -hmm. I don't know I if do it's too. racial prejudice. I don't know what do it too. is, but I think there's a reason why he didn't. Lawyers just don't right. have bad days. Is like, it possible he would have tried harder if it was a white defendant? Right. That's what I'm saying. Or just a different circumstances or who knows? Mm -hmm. Maybe he knows the other people involved in this case. I mean, He's clearly not passionate about justice. It's just like, it's a no brainer too. Like, why wouldn't you talk about the, like as a public defender, you want to win cases as well. Yeah, of course. So why wouldn't you try I know. at least to win a case on like such this? a high profile one? Yeah. It seems it's really bizarre. It seems to me what happened was, is that David McKenzie just kind of knew at the very beginning of, after looking over everything that he was screwed because of everything else that had happened. So doing a, and, didn't even want to bother fighting it because he was just going to get yeah, railroaded by the system started. and just mm -hmm. was like, you know, I could see whatever that. happens happens. And it's possible. That's what it seems like. At least his lawyers literally have evidence that he couldn't have been the shooter and they didn't even let him yeah. go over that. So nine days before the homicide happened, Julius was actually picked up by police for reckless driving. And while there was no charges that were filed, there was a dated booking photo, which showed his short hair. So unless you're telling me in nine days, his hair grew to this yeah. inch and a half length, which is not even possible. There's a freaking picture with a timestamp, a booking photo. They could have showed the jury that said nine days before this happened. This is the hair. They he could show it to match Megan. the description. Just no. period. That whole, it's like they didn't even want to hear. They're like, la, 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 whatever. We're going to do what we want to do anyway. And there's photographic evidence to support that. And the defense mm -hmm. doesn't present it. Nope. They're idiots, man. And this is the most fucking just maddening part of this whole thing. Yeah. When it came time for the defense to make its case, his attorneys simply said the defense rests without calling any witnesses to the stand. That's when you call his parents to the stand. 
That's when you call him. Everybody, him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nothing. The nothing. defense rests. And Julius had no idea that his lawyers were going to do that. They did not tell him that they weren't going to call, call him up to the stand. They didn't tell him that they weren't going to make any case for him at the end. The defense rests. That is disgusting. He should have been given a new trial just because of the lack of competency from his defense team. Fair representation? Yeah. I think not. Like, Definitely not. clearly not. not what's happening. They were here. literally working against him. And, and the thing about, like... We're sitting here like going crazy, but Julius is just such a like kind, like gentle yeah. soul. Is the Calm way still. he's just like he was said he was raging inside. Emotions mm-hmm. were overtaking him, but he just was like, "I'm just gonna keep it cool and calm and just like hope for the best." Yeah, much. and, and he like, said, "You know, these are my lawyers. I was hoping that they <sighs> knew what they're fucking doing, but no, they weren't doing anything." Is what they were doing. They did nothing to help him in this case whatsoever. The fact that David did not call Julius's parents and family as witnesses in order to give his alibi for the night that this mm-hmm. murder happened is just insane. And David McKenzie said that he actually didn't believe the family story about them being at home, even though it's pretty much verifiable. Yeah. And then he said that the reason is because Julius told his girlfriend while he was in jail, he sent her a letter that said mm-hmm. he was somewhere else that night. And she actually claimed that that is not even true, that David McKenzie just made that up. Why would you be so right. against your client? It's so weird. I mean, even people that defend fucking Jody Arias and Casey Anthony, they know they're full of shit. They don't care though. They're like, I'm going to say whatever I have to say to get you off. Why was he not doing that for Julius? Honestly, he could have been working for the prosecutor's office. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, they, maybe he's working for them. Maybe. In order to help... It, because it this makes no me. sense. It seems like they literally led him down the path to the death penalty. Yeah, this was there was no this was not a fair trial in any mm-hmm. sense of the word at all. It wasn't fair. There was no justice here whatsoever. He was completely railroaded by the system, including his defense attorneys. And just imagine being Julius's family sitting there listening to this trial go on. And they're realizing we're not even going to get to speak about this Mm -hmm. and tell the jury that our son was home with us eating dinner. He didn't even leave the house until 1130 that night, two hours after the murder happened. I know. It really does seem like they did not want him to get off for this at all. They did not want to help. No. And then it only gets worse from here. The jury selection for Julius's trial was just as unfair. There was only one black juror. And Mm -hmm. several other potential black jurors were dismissed on bases that they did not necessarily disqualify white jurors, such as their personal criminal histories. So clearly racial bias right there. Mm -hmm. His post-conviction defense team actually filed a complaint about this in 2005 and the appeals court dismissed it. Not shocking. Yeah, he he got no help from the system. But after the closing statements on February 25th, 2002, the jury deliberated for only a few hours before finding Julius guilty of first-degree murder and sentencing him to death. Can you imagine how sick you would feel being sentenced to death for something you did not do? Oh, my God. I can't wrap my head around it. I don't think any of us can possibly understand what that would be like. That's probably like one of the worst things that can happen to you in life. I would feel so hopeless. Yeah, I I mean, I I would. I don't even know how you'd continue carrying on. Like, it's just so awful. And only 21 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. He's put on death row at Oklahoma State Penitentiary. Can yeah, you imagine? Meanwhile, ma- he's supposed to be in college playing basketball, yeah. starting his future. Yeah. He said that 
he said that after you know he got out of the courtroom and stuff like all the emotions just took took him over him and mm-hmm. i can't even imagine the despair he felt but he said i never felt so abandoned by god in my life just completely alone oh my god but after the trial two of chris's fellow inmates came forward to testify that chris had discussed the case with them saying that he bragged about committing the crime and framing julius for it so basically saying that i was the one who shot paul Howe. One of the two inmates even said that Chris had told him that Julius was not even there the night of the shooting and that he hid the gun and bandana in his room. So what happens is a lot of times is inmates will come forward with information and Mm -hmm. give testimonies in exchange for deals on their sentences. Sometimes they can get a lesser sentence as a result of bringing information to a case. But unfortunately, one was already serving life and the other was sentenced to death, meaning that which means that their time in prison would not be lowered because they shared this information. They basically discounted them. So their testimony was thrown out. This information that Chris said in jail never even got to be heard by anybody because these two were serving life and on death row already. And don't even get us started on the appeals process because the appeals courts are no better. They actually were the ones that decided that the jury would not have found these testimonies reliable and that it would not have affected the verdict. What do you mean it wouldn't have affected the verdict? That's just some straight bullshit right there. Yeah, straight up lies. It's just like they don't want to deal with it. Mm -mm. They're just like, ah, Mm -hmm. it's already done. Mm -hmm. Death row. Like they don't care that a human's life is hanging in the balance here. And you literally could execute a completely innocent person. And the killer is free. Yeah. It's insane. It is absolutely insane. And they denied his request for a new trial. He's been trying to get a new trial over all these years. This is absolutely absurd, but on July 22nd, 1999, there was another carjacking case outside of a pizza restaurant and evidence showed that Chris was involved. Police told Chris after his arrest on July 30th that he would be charged with that theft if he did not help investigators. So he told them that he dropped Julius off at the restaurant and that Julius carried out that carjacking as well. So Julius ended up getting charged for that crime six weeks after he was arrested for Paul's murder. So they just slapped another one on him and he ended up having to plead guilty to that carjacking while already on death row in 2006. And he decided that pleading for a sentence of 12 years was safer than going to trial on that case where he could get screwed again and end up with a 99 year sentence, which would mean that even if his death sentence was overturned, he would still not be getting out of prison at all. He would be in prison for life because of another case and crime he didn't commit. That to me is just so crazy. They just, everything was stacked against him in this. And this happens a lot where innocent people have to plead guilty to crimes that they don't commit because, because it can make things worse for them. If that other case ends up going to trial and it could just double the amount of, of charges or, or sentencing that they have on them. The biggest impact of the second carjacking case was definitely on Julius because it completely demolished his perception that people had of him because he now pled guilty. I mean, you look guilty because, I mean, you plead guilty to the courts, then the public is going to believe that you really did the crime. It's really, it's really just a fucked up situation. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. But later on, things just only get worse. Trial records show that during Julius's trial, a juror reported to the judge that another juror had said it was a waste of time and that they should just take him out back and shoot him and bury him under the jail. And they used the N word. They said, take that N word outside. Mm-hmm. 
These are people who have his life <sighs> in their hands. Yeah, and apparently this juror ended up going to the judge and telling the judge about it. But according to court records, there was no racial slur included in the notes that were taken. So the judge just basically was like, well, whatever. Not a big deal. And what should have happened, though, is if a person, if a juror does this, this proves they have racial bias. And that means they are not able to be a juror anymore. You should be removed and replaced at yeah, that point. Or there should be a mistrial. There should be a whole new trial. Yeah, exactly. And none of that happened. But essentially, after his defense team now acquired that juror's testimony, they've been trying to file petitions. Like he's already gone through the appellate process. So he's literally at the last step before obviously getting his execution date. So they're scrambling to try and get as much evidence in order to bring it to the court of appeals in order to get him a new trial. And his defense team even filed a petition with the Oklahoma court of appeals regarding the jury's racial prejudice. But in June, 2018, his petition was denied once again. And then the other thing that his defense team has been trying to get done is get the bandana DNA tested. Cause clearly mm -hmm. if they can DNA test the bandana, maybe it'll have Chris's DNA on it, which would help them mm -hmm. in getting him a new trial. And even just doing that was a struggle. The Oklahoma district attorney now, David Prater would not even return calls to them, would not help them, would not speak to them. And it took a very long time, months and months and months for them to get them to release the bandana for DNA testing. And when they did, it unfortunately did not work out in their favor because Chris's DNA was not on the bandana and Julius's was. Which when the DNA results came back as Julius's DNA did not really surprise Julius's attorneys. Because mm -hmm. obviously if he is willing to go plant evidence in his house, he's going to be smart enough probably to wipe Julius's DNA all over it. I mean, he did stay in his bedroom. Yeah, how it'd be easy to go in the bathroom, take mm -hmm. his toothbrush and just rub his toothbrush uh -huh. over the bandana. There you go. But it's important to note that there were partial DNA profiles of three or more individuals on the bandana. An expert actually said that the limited test results provide no information about how the DNA from the major contributor, Julius, or the several minor contributors were deposited onto the bandana. The presence of the major profile or Julius's could have resulted from transference, while any one of the minor profiles could be the actual source of the stain that the testing of the bandana revealed. There you go. Mm -hmm. It's not even conclusive DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. At this point, Julius has lived on death row for almost 20 years. And he is held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, only given one hour a day of sunlight and three showers a week. That to me is just beyond Sickening. anything I can imagine. I know. I really can't imagine what that would be like. It is really hard to picture yourself in solitary confinement for that long. I mean, you would just go crazy. You'd be so angry and you're left alone with your thoughts thinking about how you were framed for murder. I would go insane for 20 years. He's been in there already. Mm -hmm. So much waste of his life. So much of his life just wasted. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately Julius's appeals are over. And again, he's in the last stages of the legal process. Julius and his defense team are waiting to see if he can get a hearing for, you know, commuting a sentence from the pardon and parole board. However, that would only give him about two minutes to state his case which is not a long time to fully cover the evidence of his innocence. What the fuck? Why are there these such stupid bizarre, rules. stupid rules I know. 
for such important things like a human's life mm-hmm. hanging in the balance. They give you two minutes to explain all your evidence. I know to make a decision whether or not to kill you. Whose idea was so that? insane? It just seems to me that so many of, of the things in our criminal justice system were uh-huh. set up to make way, way long ago mm-hmm. and, and were set up in a specific way so that the system always wins. The system always gets what it wants. And if he's not granted this hearing, he will have a standard clemency hearing 21 days before his execution date, which is still to be determined. However, Oklahoma put a temporary hold on executions in 2015 after drug mix-ups and injection mistakes causing prisoners to suffer as they died. One such case was the tragic botched execution of Clayton Lockett in which medical staff did not effectively put him under before the administration of the lethal drug due to a misplaced IV. As a result, he was conscious enough to physically react to the injection, causing a violent, torturous death. That's so upsetting. However, the Attorney General of Oklahoma recently stated that executions may begin as soon as late 2020, meaning that Julius may be given an execution date in the near future. So we're running out of time. He's running out of time. That's why you need to make your voice heard on this issue. We will leave resources in the description box for you to sign petitions, places to donate. Yeah, there's even a petition for the United States Supreme Court. Because honestly, mm-hmm. clearly the courts in Oklahoma aren't doing him any good whatsoever. No. Honestly, the president should pardon him, should you know grant him clemency. Or the governor. The governor can grant him clemency as well. So bombard the governor, if anything, mm-hmm. you know, with requests to pardon him. Well, I'm curious if they're considering it now that 6 million people have signed the petition. I mean, it's really gotten a lot of traction in the last week. I think in the last week, if I am doing the math right, it's about like, it's gotten like 2 million. Yeah. Traction's really starting to mm-hmm. pick up, but again, it, hopefully it's not too little too late at this point. Well, you would hope that public outrage would pressure them enough to do something. So, and I mean, I this is one of those that just seems so clear. Mm-hmm. Like it is all the evidence points to Chris mm-hmm. Westside Jordan as being the one that killed Paul Hal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see how Julius even makes sense as a, as the suspect here. No, he doesn't. I mean, he wasn't even there. His family was like he wasn't there. He was just with his family at home. It's so messed up. I feel like part of re- part of the reason why they maybe are continuing to just push this narrative is that if they do go back and redo a trial and look at new evidence and find him innocent, they're going to look like fucking idiots more than they already do. And you know, they don't want to be wrong. That's absolutely right. I think that's the reason why a lot of cases don't get opened because they're embarrassed by the way they handle it or the way the police department handled it. Maybe they would have to admit faults or apologize or even um, sued. Yeah. They Mm -hmm. could get sued for having him in jail all this time for no fucking reason. It's a money thing. At the end yeah. of the day, it's not even about looking bad. It's totally about money. And mm-hmm. they know that this family is going to come sue the crap out of, out of this Oklahoma city court system. I mean, in the, in just the city of Edmond and, and all of them. I just really hope that with as many people that know about this now and are speaking out that maybe there's a chance that this can be reversed. Yeah. And I mean, a ton of celebrities have been very outspoken about this NBA players, Russell Westbrook, Oklahoma city thunder, Blake Griffin have all written letters. And even with all these celebrities making as much, you know, making their voices heard still hasn't 
seem to have any effect on them. But at the end of the day, all we can do is use our voices, use our platform, spread awareness about this case, go sign the petitions and mm-hmm. yeah, just try to get this out to as many people so that hopefully the powers that be in Oklahoma will see it and his, he will at least get a new trial. Just give the man a new trial. I know. Don't you don't even have to release him. Just give him a new trial and let the you know system actually look at the evidence. Let him represent himself. Let him give his testimony. Talk about you know it's not going to be hard for him to to overturn this Mm-mm. death penalty if he's given a new trial. Yeah. So if there's anything that you can do, you can definitely share his website, Justice for Julius Jones. And they have the documentary right on there if you want to watch it. It's three parts. I highly recommend watching it. It's probably can explain it and give you more of a visual rep- representation more than we can in a podcast. It's absolutely worth the watch. It will enrage you. Share it with someone else who needs to hear about this because I don't think, even though the petition has gone viral, I'm not sure how many people actually understand the story. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to understand the actual story because mm-hmm. it only solidifies that he's innocent in all of this. And they did a really good job with the documentary. It was done by one of the executive producers was Viola Davis, who Josh and I really liked. So it was really good. Definitely. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there today, guys. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the mile higher podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, give it a thumbs up, especially this episode. Be sure to check out everything in the description or the show notes. And that is it for us today. Stay safe and stay woke.